Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Texas Governor Greg Abbott holds a press conference on yesterday's school shooting that took 21 lives. In his remarks, he addressed the issue of mental illness and its impact on the community. Evil swept across Uvalde yesterday. And the latest words from President Biden on the Texas shooting. This as lawmakers from both sides of the aisle debate over gun control measures. We'll look at the projected results for key primary races in four states, including a crucial Georgia race that may flip the majority in the Senate and the outlook heading into the midterms. An abortion clinic's license suspended for not meeting public health and safety standards. What happened? We look at who was at risk and how widespread this problem is. Supermodel Kate Moss testifies in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. In her highly anticipated testimony, she sets the record straight on a rumor that Depp pushed her down the stairs. This and the final days of the trial. In the wake of the Texas elementary school shooting on Tuesday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, along with other community leaders, spoke at Uvalde High School. As the officials were speaking about issues related to the shooting, they were confronted by Democratic candidate for governor Beto O'Rourke. Here are the details. Evil swept across Uvalde yesterday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott and other officials today held a press conference about Tuesday's school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that killed 19 children and two faculty members. Police say the shooter is Salvador Ramos, an 18-year-old high school dropout. Law enforcement on the scene shot and killed the gunman. In this C-SPAN live stream, the governor said he asked Uvalde's sheriff and the mayor what the main problem was. They said, we have a mental, we, we have a problem with mental health illness in this community. Ramos was a resident in the community and was also accused of shooting his grandmother before driving to Robb Elementary School. Media reports say that Ramos's family and acquaintances said he was quiet but aggressive and was likely bullied in high school. Your mental health is like any other health. It must be treated, it must be diagnosed, it must be talked about. You're out of line. Beto O'Rourke, who is running for governor of Texas, interrupted the press conference and made critical comments toward Governor Abbott. Uvalde's mayor, Don McLaughlin, was heard arguing and shouting at O'Rourke, who was escorted out of the auditorium. It is absolutely wrong. In fact, it is insane. The governor talks about mental health. It is insane that we allow an 18-year-old to go in and buy an AR-15. What the hell did we think he was going to do with that? This one is on us. Officials say they will release more details on the shooting and the gunman in the days to come, as families in Uvalde are recovering from the tragic event. NTD News, Texas. And President Biden giving his latest remarks today on the Texas shooting. Plus, there were debates over gun control on the Hill. NTD's Iris Tau has more. I'm sick and tired. I'm just sick and tired of what's going on. It continues to go on. President Biden addressing the shooting again today, pushing for what he calls common sense gun reforms. The idea that an 18-year-old can walk into a store and buy weapons of war designed and marketed to kill is, I think, just wrong. Biden claims that such reforms will not hurt Second Amendment rights, while adding... Second Amendment is not absolute. When it was passed, you couldn't own a 
you couldn't own a cannon. Biden also calls out gun manufacturers, which he has accused of marketing so-called assault weapons to make profits. Where's the courage to stand up to a very powerful lobby? Democrats are also urging stricter gun control. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is pushing to fast-track two gun control bills, but he won't bring them to the floor for votes anytime soon, citing Republican opposition. Many of my Republican colleagues focus on the motives of the shooters instead of focusing on the obvious common denominator. Other Democrats are calling for enhanced background checks. The Republican Senator Marco Rubio says every commercial sale already requires one. There hasn't been a single of these mass shootings that have been purchased at a gun show or at the, on the Internet. So if people want to do that, we can have that debate, but don't link it to these horrible events because they would have nothing to do with it. And President Biden is reportedly planning to visit Texas following the Uvalde school shooting. It could come as early as this weekend and will mark the second time in just weeks he has visited a site of mass shooting. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Former President Trump says he still intends to keep his long-term commitment to attend the National Rifle Association, or NRA, convention this Friday. In a statement today, he said he will pray for the victims in Tuesday's shooting and their families. The meeting was planned months ago. In a May 12th release, the NRA said the forum will be celebrating Second Amendment rights. Other scheduled speakers at the convention include Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Tuesday's school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, has renewed calls for stronger gun control measures from Democrats who are asking their Republican colleagues to reject the NRA. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer addressed the Senate this morning. In his words, if the slaughter of school chi children can't convince Republicans to buck the NRA, what can we do? This will be the sixth time that Trump addresses the NRA. The forum will take place at 2 p.m. local time Friday at the George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston. The results are in for some important primary races. Former President Trump's endorsement was put to the test in some key states. NTD's Melina Weisskopf has more. How powerful is Trump's support? In Ohio primaries earlier this month, it showed itself to be a weighty endorsement. But for Georgia, the power was more watered down. Incumbent Governor Brian Kemp is the winner of Georgia's Republican gubernatorial primary. Now he'll face Democrat challenger Stacey Abrams this fall. Tonight, the fight for the soul of our state begins to make sure that Stacey Abrams is not going to be our governor or the next president. Kemp won by more than a 50% margin over his Trump-endorsed opponent, former U.S. Senator David Perdue. And I congratulate him, and I want you to do the same thing right now. He wasn't the only Trump-endorsed candidate to lose to a sitting official. Congressman Jody Heiss lost his bid for Georgia's Secretary of State to incumbent Brad Raffensperger. But Trump's endorsement showed strength for a crucial Senate seat. Herschel Walker is the projected winner in Georgia's Republican U.S. Senate primary and will face the current Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock in November. And Georgia is a crucial state to watch this year as far as the Senate is concerned because if Republicans are able to hold all of the seats they have and flip just this one seat, it could change the party who's in power over in the chamber. And we are expecting to see a tight race between Warnock and Walker this year. 
Walker took around 800,000 votes, with Warnock taking around 700,000. So if a similar number of voters head back to the polls in November, the margin separating the winner could be slim. And on the House side, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and Democrat candidate Marcus Flowers will now compete for Georgia's 14th district House seat. But the area is strongly Republican, so flipping it blue is a long shot. And in Texas, there's a battle between progressive and moderate Democrat ideologies. Just around 200 votes separate current Congressman Henry Cuellar and his progressive challenger, Jessica Cisneros. Cuellar is pro-life and has pressured the Biden administration to get the border crisis under control, while Cisneros aligns with the progressives' immigration policies. She was endorsed by self-described socialist Senator Bernie Sanders, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and others. This race will either give the progressive wing more power on Capitol Hill or restrict it. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A Florida abortion clinic had its license suspended this past weekend after two women who had undergone procedures at the clinic were hospitalized this year. I spoke with the CEO of Reprotection, the organization that led the investigation into this clinic. Missy Martinez-Stone says some clinics here in the U.S. don't meet established medical or operational standards, and it's putting women's lives at risk. She says something as basic as a transfer agreement between a hospital and a clinic that should outline what's needed to move a patient into hospital care in the event of a medical emergency is too often missing. Missy, you spearheaded the investigation that closed an abortion clinic in Florida this week. What did your investigation find? Well, we were contacted by Emerald Coast Coalition for Life. Uh, they had identified that the abortion facility in Pensacola, American Family Planning, had lied on their transfer agreement, um, saying they had a transfer agreement with Baptist Health Hospital, um, when in fact that transfer agreement did not exist. And so when they applied for a license by the state, uh, to be an abortion facility, um, that uh, information was fraudulent. And in fact, there was an absence of emergency uh, procedures and, and protocols altogether. And your organization operates nationally. How widespread do you think this kind of malpractice is? Oh, it's absolutely everywhere. And that's why Reprotection was founded two, two and a half years ago, is that there was a national issue of laws on the books, specifically abortion regulations that were put in place to keep women safe. And depending on who was in the office responsible for that oversight, uh, they just would look the other way. Um, predominantly because either they didn't agree with that regulation, uh, they were themselves pro-choice and didn't agree that abortion should be regulated, or they didn't want to deal with the backlash that the abortion industry causes every time uh, someone tries to regulate them. We have investigations all over the country. We have about 50 going on right now um, in over 25 states. And every new community I go in and talk to the pro-life leaders on the ground, they have new stories. And so this is a, a national issue. What are some of those stories? How is this affecting women? Uh, honestly, these stories are horrific. Um, the, our first closure was in September of, of 2021, uh, when, a, when a young woman came running out of the facility screaming, call 911, because she was so afraid for her life. She was administered anesthesia, and she had a bad reaction to it. Now, 
if it was an allergic reaction or was a panic attack, it doesn't matter. She was saying she couldn't breathe. And if, if a patient is saying, I can't breathe, especially after being given anesthesia, that needs to be addressed by the physician. And the physician refused to address it and he was just trying to start the abortion anyway. And she was so afraid that she got herself off the table and ran out of the facility. And uh, we worked with the local sidewalk counselors, found out that this physician specifically had a history of medical negligence, um, had, had his license revoked before, and we worked until we got his facility shut down. How important is it in your view to have more oversight of these clinics? Oh, it's absolutely crucial. And this was a perf the Pensacola facility was a perfect example. We were saying from the beginning, there's a problem here. And at face value, you would think a transfer agreement, that's not a big deal. Yes, it is because, because they didn't have the proper emergency procedures and protocols in place. It delayed care for these women. And by the time they got to these hospitals, uh, the physicians that were treating them had no idea what was going on. There was nothing in their medical records to indicate their vitals, um, what procedures they had, what the physician at the abortion facility had done. Um, and by the time they got there, they were, they were barely alive. Um, and it all came down to not having the proper procedures in place to get these women help as soon as possible. Um, and so if we do not regulate these abortion facilities to the same standard that every other medical surgical facility, even nail salons, have more regulations than these abortion facilities. And if we do not ensure that they are enforced properly, women are going to be severely harmed, if not killed altogether. Missy Martinez-Stone, thank you. Thank you. And I reached out to the Pensacola Clinic, American Family Planning, but didn't hear back. Although an attorney for the clinic told local station WUWF that they would appeal the case. And former reality TV star Josh Duggar will now have to spend 12 years and seven months behind bars. A U.S. district judge sentenced him today for receiving and possessing child pornography. Duggar had appeared in TLC's 19 Kids and Counting. He was arrested in April last year after police found child porn files being shared by a computer traced to Duggar. They include images depicting the sexual abuse of children, including toddlers. Prosecutors argued that Duggar has a deep-seated, pervasive, and violent sexual interest in children. They asked Judge Timothy Brooks to give Duggar the maximum term of 20 years. Duggar's lawyers say Duggar is innocent and that they will appeal. Duggar has been held at a detention center in his home state of Arkansas since he was found guilty in December last year. He also faces $250,000 fines for each count. Lunchflation is now a reality, hitting many office workers across major cities in the U.S. But lunch prices aren't the only things going up. And TD's Phil Zoe has more from Midtown Manhattan. Lunchflation, it's an actual word now. Workers returning to the office are noticing prices going up for everything, including costs for lunch, transportation, and even babysitting services. Food prices are up almost 10% in April compared to the same time last year. That's the biggest jump in 40 years. There's less to do, uh, so I guess I've been losing a little bit of money, but I get more time with my daughter, so that's good. Hal Edelman is a tax consultant. He was sent home to work remotely, just like millions of other employees when the pandemic hit in 2020. 
It'll be nice to go back to the office. But he's staying positive, expecting inflation to come down eventually. Be patient. Inflation will come down over time and everything will get back to normal. Besides food and transportation costs, what about child care? Fortunately for me that I live in a place where the state helps a lot of families. Stefan is a father of two. He works at the public relations department for a chicken farm in Canada. For the chicken industry in Quebec, it, uh, the, the cost of chicken has risen by 12%, I think. In the U.S., the average annual cost for child care was over $10,000 in 2020. That's according to Child Care Aware in America. Phil Zhou, NTD News, New York. As hurricane season nears, the message for millions is to be prepared. The 2022 Atlantic season starts next week, and the official forecast calls for three to six major hurricanes. That's above normal for the seventh year in a row. Here's the latest. We must be smart, we must be safe, and we must be prepared. New York Mayor Eric Adams recognizing 2022 marks a decade since Superstorm Sandy killed 44 people in the city and just months since Ida's furious flooding took the lives of 13, many of them trapped in their basements. No one is immune from the effects of these tropical storms. The time to get ready is now. The 2022 Atlantic hurricane forecast out today from NOAA calls for an above normal season with 14 to 21 named storms, six to 10 of them hurricanes and three to six of those storms becoming major hurricanes. Whether we face three storms or 30 storms, um, I'd like you to know that FEMA, we are ready for this hurricane season. Forecasters today stressed with more and more storms battering wider areas of the country, scientists have made significant strides over the past decade predicting cones of uncertainty. Our improved track forecast has allowed us to more accurately pinpoint the area most at risk, which reduces the size of areas that may need to evacuate when a hurricane threatens. The Atlantic hurricane season officially starts next Wednesday. This year's prediction marks the seventh season in a row with an above average number of storms. The call to action today for millions of families to research their hurricane risk, find evacuation zones and realize their risk is growing. Coming up, New York City's Fleet Week is back for the first time since the start of the pandemic. NTD's Ariane Pazdar was at the ship parade and talked with active Marines and other service members. And Chen Yun Performing Arts has been touring all over the world for more than a decade. Audience members describe the performances as the spark in the dark. What makes this performing arts company so special? Find out more after the break. Every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why.
Fleet Week is back in New York City. It's a tradition in which active military ships are showcased in cities across the U.S. NTD's Arian Pazdar was at the event. Behind me, you can see the start of New York City's first in-person Fleet Week since the beginning of the pandemic. Today, these ships will pass by famous sites such as the One World Trade Center, Statue of Liberty, and Fort Hamilton. Now, New York City's first Fleet Week took place exactly 40 years ago, and it's been an annual tradition ever since. This year's main ship is the USS Bataan, an amphibious assault ship from Virginia. I talked to Marines who are stationed on that ship and asked them what they like most about it. We can be anywhere at any time. We can always uh, get anywhere. Uh, if anybody needs help, we're always here for them. Um, uh, it's how quick it moves, uh, and it also looks awesome when it's coming by, so it makes me happy being on that ship. I also talked to a surface warfare officer who's serving on board of the Bataan as well. What are some of the hardships they face? And it is hard to make time for family, but you have to prioritize what's important to you. When we're getting ready for a deployment, you can spend anywhere up to a month to three months out at sea, and then you also spend about the same amount of time in port, and you keep going back and forth as we're getting ready to go overseas and do the mission in the United States. Fleet Week involves more than just the ship parade, which took place on Wednesday. Fleet Week is scheduled to take place starting today through May 31st. Ship tours are free and open to the public, and there will also be aviation demonstrations, interactive displays and much more, not only in New York, but throughout the tri-state area. If you want to find out more, you can go to fleetweeknewyork.com. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Now let's look at a classical Chinese dance performance. Audience members around the world say Shen Yun brings hope and lifts their spirits. Some even say they feel healed in some way. Let's take a look. Today, with the division and chaos in the world, many may feel hopelessness or despair. But some have found peace and hope in an unexpected place. See, I'm half Ukrainian. So right now, I'm very worried about the Ukraine, but this gives me hope. Happy, very happy. It, it um, goes straight to your soul. You know, you just, you feel it inside the whole time. And I felt like I was in heaven for some of it. We need that divine, and it's just so impactful. Shen Yun Performing Arts has been touring all over the world for over a decade. No matter what situation or wherever they go, audiences have described the performances as the spark in the dark. You come away from it with, uh, with a very wonderful feeling, uh, a lot about the hope of the future. And it kind of like relaxes our mind and calms our spirit amidst all the turmoil, amidst all the pandemic and the war going on in Europe right now. So it's like a breath of fresh air. That you just feel happy because it's a lot of messages that probably in these new days we have forgotten. You know, it's just peace, hope, and that there's still a beautiful world out there. Based in New York, Shen Yun draws top artists from around the world inspired by a shared mission, reviving traditional Chinese culture through the arts. But it goes deeper than just creating a beautiful display. The current affairs, uh, seeing something like this, which is the message is so positive, the compassion, and I think it's very valuable. Uh, it was valuable yesterday, today, and it will be it will still make sense tomorrow and it's, it's, it's incredibly important. 
For thousands of years, classical Chinese dance was used to express traditional values like a reverence for the heavens, emphasizing virtue, and the belief that good is rewarded and evil is punished. To do that, artists look to the divine for inspiration. They believe that to create art that uplifts, one had to go through a process of purification, which is referred to as self-cultivation. Today, Shen Yun's artists follow this noble tradition. According to Shen Yun's website, alongside their rigorous training, the artists meditate together and require of themselves self-discipline and selflessness. The company says this is one of the reasons why audience members feel there is something different about Shen Yun. Just the minute I sat down, I could feel like something divine in the room, something present. Um, I, I really would say I could feel God in the room. That has a certain sense of spirituality and emotional calmness that I think only something like meditation could give you. The biggest thing I got was divine creation, creator and the importance of hope in remembering where we come from as a people, as a human race. NTD has covered Shen Yun since its inception as it believes the company's mission is culturally historic. Audience members around the world describe the performance as rejuvenating and even healing. The whole thing was healing, really. I used walking sticks to have Parkinson's disease, you know. I had trouble getting in here and after the show I walked right up out of there. I don't know what happened. <laughs> The show kept our emotions elevated. It was like we were leading a little bit to heaven. Perfection, divine, 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 or that word. My whole body's cells trembled. And for a moment, it was as if we received some kind of soothing emotion that gently caressed like soft cotton, making people instantly comfortable and relaxed, feeling good. Oh, I feel just transformed. I think it was just something that's so... Uh, powerful so that you can experience a, such a great elevation of feeling. It made me feel that there's hope and that we're back to some semblance of being normal again. It's so lifting and uh, the love that is shared in telling their stories, um, there's nothing like it. It's worth coming every night to see the same performance. If someone wants to experience truth and beauty and spirituality and be totally engaged by it, transformed by it, um, mesmerized by it, inspired by it, come to this performance. NTD News, New York. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a university professor says parents are not happy with California public schools. To fix it, he says there needs to be a fundamental change in the values taught to students. And in the NBA tonight, a pivotal game five in Miami. NTD's Dave Martin explains how we got here and who's healthy enough to play. That and more coming up. Several major California school districts are shrinking. As administrators search for a solution, more students and teachers are leaving the school districts. NTD Cynthia Kai spoke to one professor who believes the current education system needs a fundamental change 
with a return to teaching morals and the country's founding principles. Large California school districts like Los Angeles and Capistrano are on the decline. Students and families are leaving the areas, and administrators are scrambling for ways to secure funding. But Pete Peterson from Pepperdine University says the trends, which he thinks are leading to the decline, are not new. Well, I think just pointing to the growth of the homeschool movement, this has been a movement uh, that has been burgeoning for years. Since 2020, California has seen a growing number of parent advocacy groups voicing their discontent with the education system. An increasing number of parents are participating in school board recalls. They're also rallying against mandates for vaccines and masks, as well as critical race theory. But also the ideological nature being revealed uh, because parents were able to sit in the back of a a room or in the kitchen next to a living room and hear what was being taught gave them this new appreciation and shock over what was happening. In January 2021, the San Francisco School Board voted to rename 44 schools that are named after historical figures, including former presidents George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. The board reversed its decision three months later. Peterson described a similar situation targeting his alma mater, George Washington University. Of course, the attack from the other side comes, well, that, does, that means you don't want to talk about their uh, foibles or missteps. That, of course, is not what we're saying at all. But we should not be naive to the reality that if we take down the founders, it's very possible that we take down many of the things that they stood for. Peterson believes it starts with teaching students early American history and founding. He wants to teach the intent of the founding fathers. They wanted to create a republic in which freedom and liberty and the opportunity to practice and inculcate the civic virtues of courage, temperance, forbearance, uh, that this would be a place, this would be a nation in which these would not be forced upon you but that there would be a celebration and a promotion of civil society, particularly religious institutions. He said his students at the School of Public Policy are introduced to a more based approach to national politics and policy. He anticipates more civil engagement and people getting involved in local elections to voice their concerns with the direction current policies are headed. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. Over to the UK. The British Prime Minister says he takes full responsibility after senior civil servant Sue Gray published her long-awaited report, which investigated details of parties held at Downing Street during lockdown. Gray's probe unearthed repeated occasions of staff flouting COVID rules, saying the government fell well short of the high standards the public has a right to expect. We hear more from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. Uh, earlier today, Sue Gray published her final report, which I commissioned to get to the bottom of things and to set the record straight. And I'm grateful to her for her work. She's identified a number of failings, some official, some political, and some that I accept are entirely my own, for which I take full responsibility. 
The Sue Gray Partygate report provides new details of events held at Downing Street where officials got together and drank alcohol, all while millions of people across the country were banned from seeing their family and friends. Earlier in the day, Johnson faced MPs in the Commons, saying he's been humbled by the findings. Sue Gray's report has emphasised that it is up to the political leadership in Number 10 to take ultimate responsibility, and of course, I do. Johnson sought to play down his personal involvement in the gatherings, but acknowledged they took place under his watch. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer shot at Johnson and his supporters, saying the reports laid bare what he called the Ross in Number 10. They pretend that the Prime Minister has somehow been exonerated, as if the fact that he only broke the law once is worthy of praise. The truth is, they set the bar for his conduct lower than a snake's belly. He went on to make fresh demands for Johnson to be removed from office. But Johnson accused Starmer of doing nothing more than criticise for the last two years. The great gaseous zeppelin of his pomposity has been permanently punctured uh, and irretrievably by the revelation that he is himself, what, he didn't mention this, he is himself under investigation by the police. Starmer says he hadn't broken any rules in reference to his Beergate scandal, but if the police found he had, he would resign. The report by senior official Sue Gray reveals details of a series of events in 2020 and 2021. At one gathering, officials set up a karaoke machine while others brought in pizza and prosecco. At another party, there was excessive alcohol consumption, one official was sick and two others had a minor altercation. For a Christmas party, an internal memo on drunkenness advised staff to leave via the back exit to avoid the press. However, Grace says disciplinary action is outside the scope of her reports. That is a matter for others to consider. Gray also says that since her last report in January, she is pleased to see progress being made towards better leadership and accountability, and that while the government fell well short of the standards the public has a right to expect, she says these events do not reflect the prevailing culture in the government. Johnson says Number 10 now has a permanent secretary charged with upholding the higher standards as well as a new leadership team, and seeking to draw a line underneath the saga, he says he now feels an extra weight of responsibility to deliver on what he called the priorities of the British public. The cost of living, the aftermath of Covid, the war in Ukraine and levelling up across the country. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. Warnings of a global food crisis are growing as Russia and Ukraine are both major grain exporters. Russia says it's ready to provide a humanitarian corridor for vessels carrying food to leave Ukraine. But sanctions on Russian exports and financial transactions should be lifted. Kiev says this is a typical example of blackmailing. NTD's Joy Dugood has more. Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba said on Wednesday that Russia was trying to blackmail the international community by raising the possibility of an offer to unblock Black Sea ports in return for a relaxation of sanctions. So this is a clear blackmail. You could not find a better example of, of a blackmail uh, in international relations. If anyone is buying it, I think there is a problem with that person. Kuleba said if Ukraine could not export the grains currently stored in the country, that could lead to a multi-year food crisis, and Russia bears sole responsibility for the crisis by blocking Ukrainian agricultural exports. Now, if, if anyone tries to say that it's Ukraine to blame, for fighting for each other. It's the same thing as you see a criminal and a victim who is fighting for survival and you blame the victim for uh, fighting too much.
Warnings of a global food crisis are growing as Russia and Ukraine together account for nearly a third of global wheat supplies, while Ukraine is also a major exporter of corn, barley, sunflower oil and rapeseed oil. A Russian news agency reported that the country's deputy foreign minister, Andrei Rudenko, said Moscow is ready to provide a humanitarian corridor for vessels carrying food to leave Ukraine, but sanctions on Russian exports and financial transactions should be lifted. Ukraine has about 22 million tons of grain in storage, and the new harvest will come in about one and a half months. Ukrainian officials said Russian forces intensified their assault on some key towns in Donbas region on Wednesday, including Pokrov a hub for supplies and evacuations from the Donetsk region. The rocket hit at 7.30 in the morning. It damaged our house. I don't know if we can save the house. Our belongings are damaged. As Russia intensifies its attacks on key cities in the Donbas, some people remaining in the war-torn region decided to evacuate to safer cities. On April 29th, I left my house, and about two to three days later, my neighbors called me and said, Vera, that's it. Your house is gone. It burned down completely. Around a third of the Donbass was held by Russian-backed separatists before the invasion. Moscow now controls about 90% of Luhansk region, but it has failed to make major inroads towards some key cities in Donetsk in order to extend control over the entire region. Joy Dugid, NTD News. The United States doesn't want Russia to pay American investors in U.S. dollars, pushing the country toward default. Russia says it wants to pay and says it'll do it in rubles instead. But things aren't that simple. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. The U.S. says it'll stop letting Russia pay its American debt holders in U.S. dollars starting Wednesday. This pushes Russia closer to default. It looks highly likely that Russia's probably going to default. It's not a guarantee. Nicholas Creel is a business professor at Georgia College and State University. Creel says it'll be very expensive for Russia to borrow money after default, but that it'll be expensive for them regardless. This just comes off as being a punitive extra that does nothing but harm their reputation in the immediate term while also harming our own citizens who deserve repayment. Russia says it has money to pay its debts and that it wants to pay them. The country says it'll use rubles to pay instead, but it's unclear if investors will ultimately be able to get those ruble payments through the plumbing of global finance. Not just that, but... Most of these bonds uh, do not allow repayment in, uh, in rubles. Don Kaufman is the co-founder of Theotrade, an online financial education service. Kaufman says the impact on Russia itself is relatively small. The implications, though, are really on the side of the bondholders. I mean, ultimately, that default is, uh, is going to mean some billions of dollars not being repaid. Russia has around $1 billion in interest payments due before the end of 2022. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, in the UK, some missing person posters and billboards now use animation to bring still photos to life. One charity hopes the changes will make the public more likely to engage with the posters and take action. In a town in Albania, the traditional craft of wool hat making endures, thanks to a family that passes on the skill set from generation to generation.
supermodel Kate Moss testified in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial today. Her highly anticipated testimony dispelled a rumor mentioned by Heard. It's the final days of the trial between the former spouses Depp and Heard, who are both suing each other for defamation. The lawsuits revolve around domestic abuse allegations. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. Good morning, Ms. Moss. British supermodel Kate Moss was first on the stand Wednesday in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. She was testifying virtually from her home in the UK. Moss addressed a rumor that Heard alluded to during her testimony. That is, that Depp had pushed Moss down a flight of stairs during the pair's relationship in the 1990s. The supermodel set the record straight on what really happened during the incident. We were leaving the room and Johnny left the room before I did and there had been a rainstorm and as I left the room I slid down the stairs and I hurt my back. Moss said Depp did not push her down the stairs. During the course of your relationship did he ever push you down any stairs? No, he never pushed me, kicked me or threw me down any stairs. Depp also took to the stand. I have never in my life committed sexual battery, physical abuse, all these outlandish, outrageous stories of me committing these things. No matter what happens, I did get here and I did tell the truth. A former employee of entertainment tabloid TMZ took to the witness stand. TMZ exclusively published a leaked video of Depp slamming kitchen cabinets in 2016. The video was taken by Heard. Depp's lawyers asked former field assignment manager for TMZ Morgan Tremaine how the outlet obtained the video and the copyright for it. While Tremaine didn't say who sent it through TMZ's tip line, his testimony provides some insight. How long does it take for TMZ to obtain a copyright or something received directly from a source? Something in the realm of 15 minutes. How much time had passed from the time you received the kitchen cabinet video to the time it was posted on TMZ? About 15 minutes. He also said TMZ received a shortened version of the video. During a 2016 deposition, Heard appeared to let it slip that TMZ was alerted to her filing a restraining order against Depp. From some other source other than TMZ, which was alerted. But she testified under oath during the current trial that she didn't want any publicity and did not alert the media. Tremaine was asked about the incident. He didn't name sources, but said TMZ were tipped off by a news producer that Heard would be at the courthouse, as seen here in this video. What was your team of paparazzi supposed to do while they were at the Los Angeles courthouse on May 27th, 2016? Their objective was to capture her leaving the courthouse and then she was going to sort of stop and turn towards the camera to display the bruise on the right side of her face, the alleged bruise. The case is expected to end this week. Posters and billboards used to publish images of missing persons have been revamped in the UK. The new billboards use animation meaning the image of the person can smile at you or roll their eyes. The charity Missing People hopes the changes will make the public more likely to engage with the posters and take action. The new posters, featuring the details of current missing people, appeared on billboards across London for the first time today to mark Missing Children's Day. NTD's Joy Dugood has more. Missing persons posters and billboards have had a revamp, with experts turning to science and technology to make them more memorable. 
The charity Missing People hopes the changes will maximize the chance of the public taking notice of the posters. They now feature 3D images and smiling faces after the photos were animated using AI technology. It's thought these would be more memorable than 2D photos and more likely to make an instant connection with passers-by. Perhaps the most noticeable difference is the absence of the word missing, which has been replaced with the more active phrase help find. Research suggests people are more likely to engage when presented with a clear call to action. The new look posters also include a QR code to encourage passers-by to tap into social media and spread the word among their networks. People can find background maps that show where the person was last seen. The new posters were set to appear on billboards across London on Wednesday to mark Missing Children's Day and the charity planned to use the new format for all posters moving forward. Leia Croucher was 19 when she went missing from Milton Keynes on February 15, 2019. Her parents hope the new poster will help someone to remember seeing or meeting her. The other two children featured on the posters are Finn Leyland Stratfield and Alexander Slowly. Finn went missing from Tintagel, Cornwall in 2017 at the age of 17, while Alexander has been missing from Islington, London since 2008, when he was just 16. According to Missing People, some 70,000 children and young people are reported missing every year in the UK, and many more go unreported. Joy Dugid, NTD News. In Albania, the traditional craft of wool hat making endures thanks to a family that has passed on the skill set from generation to generation. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. In the ancient Albanian town of Kruja, a small shop in the old bazaar is making caps called Selesh. They're not as popular as they used to be, but the traditional craft associated with them is still here. The Guni family has proudly passed on the handcraft from generation to generation. We've continued to preserve this family tradition with my father, grandfather, great-grandfather, who have worked with this craft. We still preserve it. Numir Rakaj is an ethnographic expert from Kruya's National Ethnographic Museum. He shows the felt hats and tools used to make them. There are not a lot of people doing this kind of job, you know, or this kind of hand, uh, handcrafts, you know. But in the old bazaar, is, we are lucky to have a person who makes the traditional hat, following the old tradition, and with, with his son in his own workshop, he still preserved the old tradition of making the national hat. Many machine-manufactured hats come from China and Turkey, making Guni's quest to save the tradition more difficult. Felt hats are part of our cultural heritage. It is a handcraft which luckily has survived to our days. We've managed to preserve it with many sacrifices. Kruya offers many tourist attractions, and these traditional hats continue to be a draw. This is a great value for Kruya, and it's a great value for Albania, for entire Albania. And it needs to be promoted because uh, people need to know and also to see how really was a handcraft, you know, and how to preserve the old traditions, how important it is to preserve it. Albania's tourism started to significantly increase two years ago, before the pandemic. Albania attracted 6.4 million tourists in 2019, when tourism accounted for about 9% of gross domestic product. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Today at the French Open, a five-set thriller saw third-seeded Alexander Zverev fall behind two sets to none against unseeded Sebastian Baez before mounting a comeback. The 25-year-old, thought to be one of the rising stars on the tour, found his return game after the second set and took the third and fourth sets but then had to save a match point on the fifth to win 2-6, 4-6, 6-1, 6-2, 7-5. Elsewhere, Roland Garros number one ranked Novak Djokovic advanced to the third round by beating Alex Molkan in straight sets. Should Djokovic, who is a defending champion, and Rafael Nadal, who's won this tournament record 13 times, continue to advance, they would meet in the quarterfinals. Meanwhile, 19-year-old sensation Carlos Alcaraz improved to 30-3 on the year with a thrilling 6-1, 6-7, 5-7, 7-6, 6-4 win over fellow countryman Albert Ramos Vanolas. Alcaraz has exploded on the scene this spring with four tournament titles already, the last of which included wins over Djokovic, Nadal, and Zverev in succession. On the women's side, Americans Coco Gauff and Sloane Stephens advanced to the third round. They're joined there by two-time Grand Slam champion Victoria Azarenka. In the NBA tonight, a pivotal Game 5 in Miami as the Heat and Celtics are tied at two games apiece. It's been an up-and-down series so far as three of the four games were basically over by the fourth quarter. Only Saturday's Game 3, which Miami held on late to win, had any drama left at the end. Injuries have played a big part in the series, with both teams at less than 100%. Miami got Jimmy Butler back for Game 4, but 6th Man of the Year Tyler Hero missed the contest with a groin injury. He's listed as questionable for tonight, along with teammate P.J. Tucker. Veteran guard Kyle Lowry has missed significant time this postseason with a hamstring injury, but made his return in Game 3, yet he's still listed as day-to-day. For Boston, Jason Tatum and Al Horford are back and listed as healthy, but Defensive Player of the Year Marcus Smart missed Game 4 and is questionable for tonight's contest with an ankle injury suffered in Game 3. While the injuries have made for an inconsistent series, players on both sides have stepped up. Victor Oladipo for the Heat has played great defense while Celtics forward Grant Williams has hit some big shots. On the ice tonight, Colorado with a 3-1 series lead looks to finish off St. Louis at home. A win for the Avalanche would advance them to the conference finals for the first time in 20 years. Colorado has outscored St. Louis 10-5 since Blues goalie Jordan Bennington exited Game 3 with a lower body injury. In his place, Billy Husso has allowed 9 goals on 50 shots as St. Louis lost Games 3 and 4. Nazem Kadri scored four goals, including a hat-trick in Game 4, to go along with three assists in the series. The winner will advance to take on the winner of Edmonton, Calgary. That's all for your sports news. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.